Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 136, Boston Marriages in Literature and Life. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're talking about a new form of relationship between women that arose in the 19th century. They had all the emotional trappings of romantic love, but were long considered to be merely an intense form of friendship. More recently, however, critics have wondered whether Victorian assumptions about the inherent chasteness of womankind allowed couples who would consider themselves lesbian today to hide in plain sight. These relationships came to be known as Boston marriages, both because a number of high-profile Bostonians engaged in them, and because Henry James popularized the concept in his novel, The Bostonians. As the name indicates, real relationships between women were influenced by contemporary literature by James, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and Oliver Wendell Holmes. But these authors also drew inspiration from the apparently romantic relationships they saw between the women in their lives. But before we talk about Boston marriages, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is the book Improper Bostonians, not to be confused with the magazine Improper Bostonian. Published in 1998, the book was compiled by The History Project, which is an independent community archive of Boston's LGBTQ history. The book started out as an exhibit at Boston Public Library in 1996, focusing on the history of the LGBTQ community in Boston prior to Stonewall. After that exhibit drew tens of thousands of visitors, the History Project began adapting the material into a book, which was published two years later with a foreword by Congressman Barney Frank. The book attempts to reconstruct the often deliberately obscured history of homosexuality in Boston throughout history. It opens with a discussion of sodomy laws in the earliest days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, while also exploring how Puritans could embrace same-sex love between men, even Governor John Winthrop, if it didn't upset the social order. The book continues into the 18th century, examining cases of non-traditional gender roles, including the story of Deborah Sampson, who disguised herself as a man to fight with honor in the American Revolution. With each successive era, the book sprawls out bigger, as more of the history can be recovered. The section covering the 19th century fills more pages than the previous 200 years combined. Although familiar figures like Walt Whitman are featured, many of the chapters in this section embrace famous women, including some of those featured in this episode. The 20th century is divided into sections for 1900 to 1945, and then 1945 to 1969, and each of those sections is about as large as the section for the 19th century, as homosexuality became more openly discussed. One of the last chapters is a profile of Prescott Townsend, whom you might remember from our show about him last November. Born in 1894, Townsend in many ways embodied the 20th century experience of LGBTQ Boston, graduating from a Harvard that was still overtly hostile to homosexuality, serving in the military during the First World War, and then spending his entire life advocating for gay rights before finally marching in the first Pride Parade when he was 76 years old. We'll include a link to more information about the book in this week's show notes, but it can be hard to find a copy now. Just in case you can't find one, we'll also include a link to a slideshow from the History Project called Public Faces, Private Lives, which is based on the original exhibit at the BPL that inspired the book. And for our upcoming event this week, we have an event that marks a century of women's suffrage. 
The effort to pass legislation allowing women to vote in American elections began picking up steam in the Reconstruction era after the Civil War and went into overdrive with the turn of the 20th century. After a decade-long legislative fight, a constitutional amendment was passed by the House of Representatives in May of 1919, and on June 4th, the Senate approved it. When it was ratified by the states the following year, the 19th Amendment simply said, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. On June 19th, author Susan Ware will be giving a talk based on her book, Why They Marched, Untold Stories of the Women Who Fought for the Right to Vote, at the Story Chapel Visitor Center at Mount Auburn Cemetery. Here's how the event page describes it. For far too long, the history of how American women won the right to vote has been told as the tale of a few iconic leaders, all white and native-born. But Susan Ware uncovered a much broader and more diverse story waiting to be told. Why They Marched is a tribute to the many women who worked tirelessly in communities across the nation, out of the spotlight, protesting, petitioning, and insisting on their right to full citizenship. Ware tells her story through the lives of 19 activists, most of whom have long been overlooked. We meet Mary Church Terrell, a multilingual African-American woman. Rose Schneiderman, a labor activist building coalitions on New York's Lower East Side. Claiborne Caitlin, who toured the Massachusetts countryside on horseback to drum up support for the cause. Mary Johnston, an aristocratic novelist bucking the Southern ruling elite. Emmeline W. Wells, a Mormon woman in a polygamous marriage determined to make her voice heard, and others who helped harness a groundswell of popular support. We also see the many places where the suffrage movement unfolded, in church parlors, meeting rooms, and the halls of Congress, but also on college campuses and even at the top of Mount Rainier. Few corners of the United States were untouched by suffrage activism. Ware's deeply moving stories provide a fresh account of one of the most significant moments of political mobilization in American history. The dramatic, often joyous experiences of these women resonate powerfully today as a new generation of young women demands to be heard. The event begins at 6 p.m. Admission is free, but advanced registration is required. Check out the show notes this week for more information and a link to the registration page. Before we start talking about Boston marriages, we want to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Podcasts are a great medium because they've always been free to listen to. Unfortunately, they're not free to create. Along with the time we spend every week researching and writing a new episode, we also spend money on our podcast feed host, our web host, and some online audio processing tools. Supporting us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month helps us cover the cost of creating Hub History. Plus, there are special rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels, or as we call them, the Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams levels. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on support us. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In his novel, The Bostonians, Henry James introduces us to Olive Chancellor and Verena Tarrant, who become the quintessential Boston marriage. Olive made Marina sit down near her on the sofa and looked at her all over in a manner that caused the girl to rejoice at having put on the jacket with the gilt buttons. It was this glance that was the beginning. 
It was with this quick survey, omitting nothing, that Olive took possession of her. You are very remarkable. I wonder if you know how remarkable, she went on, murmuring the words as if she were losing herself, becoming inadvertent in admiration. The girl had moved her as she had never been moved, and the power to do that, from whatever source it came, was a force that one must admire. Her emotion was still acute, however much she might speak to her visitor as if everything that had happened seemed to her natural, and what kept it, above all from subsiding, was her sense that she had found here what she had been looking for so long, a friend of her own sex with whom she might have a union of soul. In the book, Olive and Verena fall deeper and deeper in love, at times finding expression in caresses and chaste kisses until a man drives them apart. In her article, Female Same-Sex Relationship in Novels by Longfellow, Holmes, and James, in the September 1978 issue of New England Quarterly, Lillian Faderman gives an expansive definition to the form of love that this fictional couple might have felt. To young middle-class women of the 19th century, being in love meant experiencing intense feelings of affection and devotion which were more likely to have found occasional expression in generalized sensual rather than specifically genital contact. In this view, we may believe that before her marriage, a young Victorian woman was just as prone to fall in love with another woman as with a man. While Olive and Verena may have been a fictional couple, they were inspired by real people, people who were very close to Henry James. Alice James had quite the family. Her oldest brother, William, was a philosopher who basically invented the idea of psychology as a separate field of study, and whose book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, I studied in a senior seminar on epistemology. The second James brother was Henry, the novelist who created Olive and Verena. Next up were Wilkie and Bob, two middle brothers who had more prosaic careers. And finally, the baby of the family was Alice James. Alice never received a formal education, But she was highly intelligent, and when her diaries were finally published 70 years after her death, her writing was found to be on par with both of her famous brothers. When she was in her mid-twenties, she taught history at a Boston-based correspondence school from 1873 to 1876. The head of the department was Catherine Peabody Loring, and the two became increasingly close. Unfortunately, Alice was plagued by a series of mental and physical ailments. Doubly unfortunately, She lived in a time when women's complaints were routinely dismissed as a form of hysteria. As James's biographer Jean Strauss commented, She never married. She did not have children. She was not socially useful, particularly virtuous, or even happy. Her interests and talents might have led her to become a historian or a writer on politics, a pioneer in women's education, or the leader of a radical movement. Instead, she became an invalid. Like a great many other 19th century women, she was delicate, high-strung, nervous, and given to prostrations. She had her first breakdown at the age of 19, and her condition was called, at various points in her life, neurasthenia, hysteria, rheumatic gout, suppressed gout, cardiac complications, spinal neurosis, nervous hyperasthenia, and spiritual crisis. Alice embraced the life of an invalid, and it only deepened her relationship with Catherine Peabody Loring. In his book, Hub of the Gay Universe, Russ Lopez describes their blossoming romance. Also from a prominent Boston family, 
Loring co-founded the famous Saturday Morning Club with Julia Ward Howe, in addition to being one of the co-founders of what would eventually become Radcliffe College. Loring was torn between taking care of her own invalid sister and Alice with her many infirmities, but the relationship was intense enough that when Loring went to England, Alice followed. Loring was everything that Alice wanted, man and woman, father and mother, nurse and protector, intellectual partner and friend. Before long, Loring was her primary caregiver, moving in with her on Mount Vernon Street on Beacon Hill. A few years into their cohabitation, Alice described Catherine in an 1879 letter to her friend, Sarah Darwin. I wish you could know Catherine Loring. She is a most wonderful being. She has all the mere brute superiority which distinguishes man from woman, combined with all the distinctly feminine virtues. There is nothing she cannot do, from hewing wood and drawing water, to driving runaway horses, and educating all the women in North America. In another letter to Darwin, Alice describes the first excursion the two women went on together, an extended vacation to a family cabin on a lake in the Adirondack Mountains. We had the shanty fortunately all to ourselves, and the only romance in the situation was at night when we sat by our bonfire, the woods all around us, and no one else within a mile, save some lively cows who, in the middle of the night, with that unreasonableness characteristic of their sex, would charge the shanty with their horns, driving Catherine to her revolver and me under the bed. But the joy was soon denied us, for a male protector presented himself in the person of the virtuous Dr. Charles Putnam, who stayed a few days. He ate and consorted with us through the day, but when the deeper shades of night fell, he, with great and unexpected propriety, betook himself the other house. The pair traveled around New England in the early 1880s and visited England and Scotland a few times, eventually settling there in 1884. Their intense relationship would last for a lifetime. Unfortunately, though, that lifetime together would be cut short. By 1890, Alice was diagnosed with a tumor that is understood today to have been breast cancer. In early 1892, Alice James knew that she was dying. On New Year's Day, she wrote in her diary, As the ugliest things go to the making of the fairest, is it not wonderful that this unholy granite substance in my breast should be the soil propitious for the perfect flowering of Catherine's unexampled genius for friendship and devotion? The story of her watchfulness, patience, and untiring resource cannot be told by my feeble pen, but all the pain and discomfort seem a slender price to pay for all the happiness and peace with which she fills my days. The final entry in Alice's journal was dictated to Catherine on March 5, 1892, just a few hours before she fell into unconsciousness for the last time. Physical pain, however great, ends in itself and falls away like dry husks from the mind, whilst moral discords and nervous sorrows sear the soul. These last, Catherine has completely under the control of her rhythmic hand, so I go no longer in dread. Oh, the wonderful moment when I felt myself floated for the first time into the deep sea of divine cessation and saw all the old dear mysteries and miracles vanish into vapor. Lopez notes, The two lived together through Alice's final illness, and Henry James was grateful for the care that Loring lavished on his sister. Though William's wife found the overt lesbianism distasteful, the rest of the family did not. Alice died on March 6th at just 43 years old. 
A month later, Catherine sailed for Boston, carrying Alice's diary and her ashes. This lifelong, committed, and passionate relationship seems to fit the description of a Boston marriage that Teresa Theofano articulated while writing for the GLBTQ archive. Boston marriages were long-term and committed, and resembled traditional marriages in many ways. But remaining unattached to men gave women a chance to attain significant decision-making power over their own lives, power they would have forfeited to their husbands in a conventional marriage. It is very likely that some, if not all, of Boston marriage couples were physically as well as emotionally involved. Their love letters to each other indicate a passion that could hardly be considered platonic, and modern lesbian historians and writers have speculated that if members of Boston marriages were alive today, they would openly identify as lesbian. Boston marriages signified a new phenomenon, however, in that the women involved in them tended to be college-educated, feminist, financially independent, and career-minded, hardly the social norm among females of the day. These characteristics distinguish women bound together in Boston marriages from participants in the earlier romantic friendships. Women's colleges were seen as a fertile ground for the intense relationships that could express themselves as a Boston marriage later on. Today, the Boston area still has Wellesley and Simmons, but at the time, Leslie, LaSalle, Emanuel, Wheelock, Radcliffe, and even Mount Ida College were all women's schools. In an article of for JSTOR Daily, Aaron Blakemore describes crush culture at women's colleges. Romantic friendships were common throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, and those passionate friendships often expressed themselves through a crush, smash, or mash. Someone who developed a fancy for another person had a crush, and once they won over the object of their affections, they became smashed by their love. From googly-eyed looks to bouquets and trinkets, college women tried hard to win each other with poems, declarations of love, and open sentiment. But not everyone loved crushes. People worried that crushes would keep women from marrying men, decried them as immature and hysterical, and criticized the practice. As developing psychological views began to depict women as sexual beings, crushing began to ring alarm bells for administrators and girls alike. By 1920, writes Wilk, Affairs of the heart between women became increasingly suspect, closing the door on the last breath of innocence. During that innocent time, though, people could read about crushing in books about college life. Sherry A. Ennis's study of women's college fiction reveals a universe of affectionate relationships between women. Friendships were construed as romantic and crushes accepted, writes Ennis, and crushes in turn developed specific social guidelines. College fiction frankly described everything from caresses to mouth-kissing, and painted the women who aroused these sensations as desirable and sexual. But slowly that openness faded, as psychological literature painted same-sex relationships as complexes and disorders. An earlier model of female romance, though it predates the term Boston marriage, can be found in Longfellow's 1849 book Kavanaugh, a romance set in a small New England town. In this fictional account, Alice and Cecilia embody the growing crush culture of women's colleges. Almost the only sunshine that, from without, shone into the dark mansion came from the face of Cecilia Vaughn, the schoolmate and bosom friend of Alice Archer. 
They were nearly of the same age and had been drawn together by that mysterious power which discovers and selects friends for us in our childhood. They sat together in school, they walked together after school, they told each other their manifold secrets, they wrote long and impassioned letters to each other in the evening. In a word, they were in love with each other. And after they left school, the love between them, and consequently the letters, rather increased than diminished. In her article in the New England Quarterly, Lillian Faderman explains, Longfellow was probably not depicting a lesbian relationship through knowledge of what such relationships entail, but he was mirroring the sort of female-female relationships that Henry James observed to be common in 19th century New England. Longfellow would have seen that pairs of women appeared to like to be together. They held hands, they fondled and kissed, they seemed to suffer intensely at separation. And he understood such relationships to be entirely within the spectrum of acceptable behavior. As we saw with the example of Alice James and Catherine Loring, a monogamous, passionate, long-term relationship could win the approval of everyone from immediate family to literary Boston society. In light of the intense struggle to win acceptance and protections for same-sex relationships that stretched from more or less the Stonewall riots in 1969 that jump-started the public-facing gay rights movement, to Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court ruling that formalized marriage equality nationwide, it may seem strange that same-sex couplings could be so broadly accepted even a century earlier. As Faderman points out in her article, the acceptance that Boston marriages enjoyed in the mid to late 19th century was a product of how women were viewed within the wider society at that time. Keep in mind that Faderman wrote this in 1978 as the gay rights movement was just beginning to embrace lesbianism. It was a time when public opinion of romantic relationships between women was perhaps at its lowest point. She said, Before the 20th century, love relationships between women were apparently viewed with much less concern than that to which we had become accustomed. There seem to have been several reasons for such tolerance. Number one, because a woman had virtually no economic independence, it was safe to assume that she would marry at the first suitable opportunity and that her affectional ties with other women, no matter how powerful, would present no real threat to society. Number two, the possibilities of erotic expression between women were seldom seriously entertained, the assumption being that most women merely tolerated sex and only for procreative reasons. Number three, the medical profession did not acknowledge the existence of female homosexuality until the late 19th century. And finally, number four, it was assumed in the 19th century, once female sexual aberration was medically acknowledged, that homosexuality among women was rare and readily identifiable, since female sex variants generally look like men. As late as 1896, an American doctor, Alan Hamilton, wrote in the American Journal of Insanity that a homosexual woman was usually of a masculine type, or if she presented none of the characteristics of the male, was a subject of pelvic disorder with scanty menstruation and was more or less hysterical or insane. A woman who did not appear to be masculine or behave hysterically was thus probably not considered aberrant, although she may have had a close, loving relationship with another woman. At a time before same-sex attraction between women was pathologized, women who did not appear masculine or behave hysterically 
could pool their resources and cohabitate openly, as Annie Adams Fields and Sarah Orne Jewett did at 148 Charles Street at the foot of Beacon Hill. Anne West Adams was born in Boston in 1834 and grew up attending an elite finishing school run by a former Harvard professor and headmaster of English High. It provided one of the most complete educations available for girls at the time, and Annie learned history, literature, Italian, and read the classics and major biographies. Annie's first love was James Fields, a partner in the publishing house Tickner and Fields, who would later edit and publish the Atlantic Monthly. The two were married in 1854, when she was 20 and he was 37. Remaining childless seemingly by choice, the couple began hosting a literary salon in their townhouse on Charles Street. Over the years, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Mark Twain, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Emma Lazarus, Longfellow, and Rudyard Kipling were all regular visitors. Henry James, another frequent guest, said, Here, behind the effaced anonymous door, was the little ark of the modern deluge. Here still, the long drawing room that looks over the water and towards the sunset, with a seat for every visiting shade from far away Thackeray down, and relics and tokens so thick on its walls as to make it positively, in all the town, the votive temple to memory. Then, in 1881, James Fields died, possibly from a brain hemorrhage. Annie Adams Fields began to withdraw from the world, cutting off ties with most of her old friends. All that is, except one. Sarah Orne Jewett was an author whom Annie had discovered and encouraged James to publish. Their friendship deepened, and within a year after James Fields' death, the two women were cohabitating. For the rest of their lives, nearly 30 years, they would spend summers at Jewett's farmhouse in South Berwick, Maine, and winters in the townhouse on Charles Street. They traveled together around the country and across Europe, and they rode each other nearly daily when they were apart. Annie and Sarah continued entertaining, and continued to host salons where famous writers held forth. Willa Cather described her first visit to the long drawing room on Charles Street and the two women who could be found within. That room ran the depth of the house, its front windows heavily curtained on Charles Street, its back windows looking down on a deep garden. Directly above the garden wall lay the Charles River and beyond the Cambridge shore. At five o'clock in the afternoon, the river was silvery from a half-hidden sun. Over the great open space of water, the western sky was dove-colored with little ripples of rose. The air was full of soft moisture and the hint of approaching spring. Against this screen of pale winter light were the two ladies, Mrs. Fields reclining on a green sofa directly under the youthful portrait of Charles Dickens, Miss Jewett seated the low tea table between them. While some of the other Boston marriages we've talked about are described in terms vague enough to encompass everything from long-term roommates to passionate lovers, Annie and Sarah embraced the cultural implications of the word marriage more fully than others. They even celebrated their wedding anniversary, as you can hear in this poem that was discovered in Sarah Orne Jewett's notes and published posthumously. Do you remember, darling, a year ago today, when we gave ourselves to each other, before you went away? At the end of that pleasant summer weather, which we had spent by the sea together. 
How little we knew, my darling, all that the year would bring. Did I think of the wretched mornings when I should kiss my ring? And long with all my heart to see the girl who gave the ring to me. We have not been sorry, darling. We loved each other so. We will not take back the promises we made a year ago. And so again, my darling, I give myself to you with graver thought than a year ago, with love that is deep and true. A year later, she wrote to Annie during a brief separation. I shall be with you tomorrow, your dear birthday. I don't care whether there is starlight or a fog. Yes, dear, I will bring the last sketch and give it its last touches if you think I had better spend any more time on it. I am tired of writing things. I want now to paint things and drive things and kiss things. Good night, and God bless you, dear love. After Sarah died in 1909, Annie edited a volume of her letters and papers for publication. However, Judith Fryer describes how that volume presented a sanitized version of their relationship in a piece called What Goes On in the Ladies' Room? Sarah Orne Jewett, Annie Fields, and Their Community of Women in a 1989 issue of the Massachusetts Review. In 1911, Mark DeWolf Howe, Annie Fields' editor, would urge Fields to omit most of the indications of affection between the two women for the mere sake of the impression we want the book to make on readers who have no personal association with Miss Jewett, doubting whether you will like to have all sorts of people reading them wrong, and would himself heavily edit Fields' diaries after her death for his 1922 Memories of a Hostess. Unfortunately, this censorship both by and of Annie Fields is successful in obscuring the central question of today's episode. What was the nature of the relationship women enjoyed in Boston marriages in the 19th and very early 20th centuries? A 2012 article in The Atlantic, James Fields' old magazine, ironically enough, quotes Peggy Wishart, manager of the Sarah Orne Jewett House in Maine. The thing we don't know about any of these people is the question most modern people have. Were they gay? She said it seemed completely natural for women like Alice James or Sarah Orne Jewett to settle into partnership, continuing, And it didn't necessarily occur to friends to wonder what their sex life was like. Women were perceived to be non-sexual to begin with, and most people assumed that if they didn't have husbands, they wouldn't have any interest in sex. You have to remember, ever since Freud, we viewed everything through this very sexualized lens. For a Victorian person, that was not the case. I think it's almost impossible for us to fully understand the way they saw things back then. In Hub of the Gay Universe, Lopez says, To this day, there is heated debate over whether these relationships contained a sexual dimension or not, arising, in part, because of the continued reluctance to acknowledge women had sexual desires in addition to the lack of explicit evidence of sexual activity left from this era. But there is no dispute over the strong romantic and emotional bonds between the women in these relationships, making arguments over the frequency of sexual acts inside them irrelevant. Women experienced sadness when they were apart and jealousy when their loved ones caught the eye of others. Over entire lifetimes, these women sacrificed and cared for each other, and their grief upon death or the end of a relationship could be overwhelming. Further indication of the sexual dimension of these relationships is the number of women who destroyed correspondence, diaries, and any other materials that might have produced evidence of the sexual component of these partnerships. Whatever chastity these women demonstrated in public 
was refuted by their shame of the eroticism of their private lives. Were some of the women who lived in Boston marriages simply lifelong friends? Of course. Were others romantically paired in a way that would be considered a lesbian relationship today? Almost certainly. The historic record deliberately obscures the details, but in reading the fictional versions of these couplings created by famous writers, and especially by reading the passionate letters and poems they wrote to and about one another, we recognize the probability of true love. To learn more about Boston marriages, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 136. We'll have links to the articles we quoted from by Judith Fryer and Lillian Faderman, as well as a number of pieces about the concept of Boston marriage. We'll include a portrait of Annie Adams Fields that was painted by John Singer Sargent, as well as a photograph of Fields and Sarah Orne Jewett taken inside the famous drawing room in their Charles Street townhouse. Plus, we'll link to ebooks of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's Kavanaugh and The Bostonians by Henry James. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Improper Bostonians, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about steam power, drinking water, and engineer E.D. Levitt with Eric Peterson of the Metropolitan Waterworks Museum. <laughs>